I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. On this week's program... Why the European Central Bank will continue to prop up the Eurozone despite its recent impressive economic performance. Even Italy's doing pretty well. Its growth in the most recent quarter, which I have data for, is actually better than either America or Britain. How investors are taking care of the planet. Commercial banks issue these green bonds in order to then use the proceeds to make loans to, for example, build wind parks. And the BRICS economies. An idea whose time has come back. These four economies suddenly started thinking of themselves as a group and they started having regular meetings. But first, not long ago, the meeting this Wednesday and Thursday of the European Central Bank was expected to mark a turning point. As part of what was seen as a global trend towards tighter monetary policy, the ECB was expected to signal the winding down of its programme of quantitative easing, or QE, under which it's buying 60 billion euros worth of bonds each month. John O'Sullivan, our economics editor, has been looking ahead to this meeting. Hello, John. Hello. Is this meeting still being seen as a turning point? No. It's pivotal in some sense that once a quarter the ECB staff comes out with a new forecast and they're likely to nudge up their forecast for growth and maybe nudge down their forecast for inflation. But at the beginning of the year, I think a lot of people had looked at the June meeting as the one where the ECB would start to signal that it was moving away from QE. And that now seems very, very unlikely. In fact, completely improbable. And why is that? What's changed? The main thing that's changed is not that the economy is doing worse. In fact, if anything, it's doing better. We've had figures this week showing the Purchasing Managers Index, which is a sort of broad gauge of activity and services and manufacturing has actually stayed at its six-year high. Same picture coming out from the European Commission's economic sentiment indicator. So the economy is actually doing better and better. It's going from strength to strength. What's missing is a pickup in underlying inflation. And in fact, on the latest figures, underlying inflation, that's inflation excluding food and energy prices, has actually gone down. And it's stuck below 1%, which is where it's been for most of the last few years and doesn't show any real sign of moving back towards the 2% inflation target. So last week, Mario Draghi, the ECB's boss, gave a very strong hint that what we're going to get is continued loose monetary policy. They're not going to back away from QE, and they're not going to change interest rates. And have they identified the problem? Why do they think inflation is so stubbornly low? I think it's a little bit easier to explain low inflation, which has actually been happening everywhere. Surprisingly, low inflation has been true also in America in a European context, because there's a bit more spare capacity in Europe than there is everywhere else. The unemployment rate is falling, but it's still above 9%. In America, by contrast, it's below 4.5%, roughly half that level. So there's lots of spare capacity in the Eurozone economy, so it can still grow at a fair, decent clip without really generating any inflation. So there's still more to go for. But the recovery, I suppose, is still very uneven, isn't it? Some countries are doing far better than others. 
it's usually safe to say that in the eurozone, which is a story generally of divergence. But actually, if you look at, I mentioned the Purchasing Managers Index, it's pretty broad, the pickup in, in activity across the eurozone. Even Italy, which one thinks of as the sort of most benighted, is doing pretty well. Its growth in the most recent quarter, which I have data for, is actually better than either America or Britain. So it's actually a fairly broad-based recovery across Europe. It's all very encouraging, and the ECB seems minded not to tread on this. So how controversial is this decision likely to be? Is there consensus now that it's, it's found the right course? Or are there some people saying, no, now is the time to start winding down? What's interesting about what Mr Draghi said last week, he said that the the council was firmly convinced that an extraordinary amount of monetary support was still needed. And that seemed to suggest something close to a consensus. I think the best way of reading this is that the hawkish elements on the ECB governing council, thinking here of the German members, probably don't have an awful lot to hang a story about tapering QE on because inflation simply has disappointed. And can we look for a moment just at the global context of this? I mean, how out on a limb is the ECB now? I mean, we've got the Fed tightening in the US expected to raise interest rates again this month. Is it a global outlier? Not really. The Fed is tightening, but the market thinks the Fed will raise this month and then won't do very much for a long time after that. And that's also because inflation has surprised on the downside in America. In Japan, there's still lots of quantitative easing going on. And if you take the balance sheets of the central banks of Japan, the Federal Reserve, the ECB, QE is still going up globally. So it's still a very, very lax sort of accommodative monetary policy stance across the rich world. John O'Sullivan, Economics Editor, thank you very much. Thank you. So, listeners, what are your predictions for this week's meeting of the European Central Bank? Do you expect that quantitative easing will soon be on its way out? Let us know by tweeting us at Economist Radio or emailing us at radioeconomist.com. Next, the global fight against climate change suffered a setback last week when Donald Trump announced that he was pulling America out of the Paris Climate Agreement. But of course, it's not just intergovernmental agreements that will decide the fate of the planet. The private sector has a big role to play. And some cheerier signs can be seen in the financial markets, for example. The issuance of green bonds earmarked for environmentally friendly projects is expected to total $120 billion this year, up from just $93 billion in 2016. Our finance correspondent, Krista Koskolo, joins me now to tell us more about these bonds. Hello, Krista. Hi, Simon. First of all, what exactly is a green bond? A green bond is financially identical to, to any other bond other than that its proceeds are earmarked for an environmental cause like a renewable energy project or retrofitting old buildings to make them more environmentally friendly. It functions like a bond. A company raises money, you know, sells it to the markets, but then it pledges to use it for an environmental cause and pledges to report on whether it has actually done so. Who are the big issuers, the big borrowers in the green bond market? Interestingly, issuers come in all shapes and sizes. A fair segment of the market, about 30%, is commercial banks who issue these green bonds in order to then use the proceeds to make loans to, for example, build wind parks. About 30% are directly issued by corporates, so electricity utilities actually building those wind parks. About 20% are issued by multilateral development banks, so the likes of the World Bank, the European Investment Bank. Development banks, and specifically the World Bank, were actually sort of the initiators of this green bond market. They have now ceded the market to fully private actors, only making up a small portion of the total issuance. And looking at the other side, who are the investors? Is it mainstream finance now, or are we talking about niche ethical investment funds? The volumes are quite big. The buyers are really institutional investors, although often as part of a climate commitment. 
for example, Zurich, the big insurance company, has committed to doubling its allocation to green bonds from $1 billion to $2 billion U.S. dollars. Some asset managers are actually offering green bond-only funds. So Lombard Odier, a Swiss private bank, recently set up a fund that exclusively invests in green bonds. Well, in climate bonds, so they also invest in some bonds that they feel like are sort of similar to green bonds in the level of transparency, but aren't actually sort of labeled with a stamp. And then they exclude some green bonds that they feel don't really live up to snuff. You mentioned the stamp of green authenticity, if you like. Now, who is responsible for providing that? And who polices that the proceeds of the bonds are, in fact, spent as they're supposed to be? That's still a little bit of a dicey area. It's very early days and there are a lot of competing standards with varying levels of details. At the sort of broadest level, there is something called the Green Bond Principles, which is set by this committee of the International Capital Markets Association, which is one of the world's largest industry bodies for the financial sector. It includes a lot of big investment banks and asset managers. But a lot of the phrasing in those Green Bond Principles is relatively vague, like they'll talk about sustainable water. How do you actually define, you know, how much water is some project saving? Other organizations have sprung up to verify these bonds. One is called the the Climate Bond Initiative, which is sort of an NGO that has this certification process. There are several companies that are basically specialized environmental consultancies that a lot of these green bond issuers go to for a second opinion in the issuer report saying we verify that this this bond looks like it'll be used well. And actually, 97% of bonds that are not U.S. municipal bonds use such a second opinion. And now actually the rating agencies are getting in on this game. So just very recently, both S&P and Moody's have started up their own environmental evaluation practices, and they're actually setting up more of a sort of scale similar to the ratings on credit ratings. It's still early days, and they haven't really issued very many of them yet. But the idea there would be to have a more of a gradational scale rather than saying, okay, this is not a green bond, and this is a green bond and gets a stamp, then maybe you know, this is an extremely good green bond and gets a ranking of one, but this is not so good, so it gets a ranking of three or four. Krista Koskolo, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And finally, it was in 2001 that an economist at Goldman Sachs came up with the acronym BRICS, grouping four big emerging market economies, Brazil, Russia, India and China. The idea has fallen a bit out of vogue as the BRICS economies have diverged and some have floundered. But now that Brazil has just emerged from recession, is it time to look again at the BRICS? I'm joined on the line from Hong Kong by our Emerging Markets Editor, Simon Cox. Hello, Simon. Hi. So we've now got Brazil's economy growing again at last. We've got all four BRICs in growth. Uh, Is the idea, as it were, back on track? I think it's worth re-examining. I mean, the idea has fallen into some disrepute. The stock market index for the BRICs as a whole is still down 40% from its peak back in 2007. And I think the concept has come in for some ridicule. It's seen as just a contrivance, uh, a way of selling some investment funds. But it is interesting that in all four of these economies, certainly the worst seems to be behind them. In Brazil and Russia, they've benefited from the stabilization of commodity prices. In Brazil, Russia and India, inflation's coming down really quite quickly. Uh, Conversely, in China, where inflation was arguably too low and people used to be worried about deflation, prices have firmed up a bit. And even the stock market index, although it's down very much from its peaks back in 2007, it's up a healthy 15% or so this year uh, and certainly outperformed uh, the S&P 500. But is it then seen as making sense as an investment group or are they just four large emerging market economies that have their own characteristics? 
It's certainly very diverse, and critics are very quick to point out what a heterogeneous bunch they are, how they're not actually natural allies in geopolitics, and how the economies in some ways move quite differently from each other. But I think the great underlying virtue of the whole BRICS concept was just to point out that if you get catch-up growth dynamics in very populous, large countries, uh, that has a much bigger effect on the world economy than it would in small Asian tigers, such as you know, Korea. And it's interesting how uh, people can miss the most obvious facts, uh, the fact that if you have fast growth in a country with you know, over a billion people or over 100 million people, that's very different from uh, fast growth in a small place like uh, Hong Kong, where I'm speaking from. But I suppose one of the extraordinary aspects of all this, looking at it from a long perspective, is that here's an idea that a smart economist that Goldman Sachs comes up with, and it actually seems to have geopolitical repercussions. These economies start cooperating with each other, start setting up institutions together. How evolved is that cooperation? So I think that was almost the self-fulfilling bit. I think all of these four economies suddenly started thinking of themselves as a group and they started having uh, regular meetings. And, of course, they developed this new bank, the BRICS Bank, which is actually called the New Development Bank. Um, that's based in Shanghai, but it's headed by an Indian. Um, I think the cooperation rather like the concept, has failed to live up to the highest expectations, although it's still rather better than it probably would have been if the concept had never been invented. Recently, I think in April, the New Development Bank issued its first loan to Brazil, so it now has projects going in all of the BRIC members. It's still seen as uh, overly dominated by China, and in fact, one of its keenest members is South Africa, which wasn't even a member of the original Goldman Sachs BRICS group. So is Goldman Sachs now overtly proud of its 2001 creation? Well, they talk about it much less than they used to. Many people noted the irony that in 2015 they actually merged one of their BRIC funds into a broader emerging markets fund. And for some time now they've been trying to move people on from these four economies to look at a broader variety of emerging markets. Um, So I think that even the original sponsor is perhaps uh, less enthusiastic about it than they used to be. And, of course, Jim O'Neill, who invented the term, uh, has also moved on. Simon Cox in Hong Kong, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Well, that's all for this week's Money Talks. If you'd like to get in touch about anything in today's programme, you can use our Twitter handle, at Economist Radio, or email radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. 